Jesus is using the imagery of a demon and this room to talk to us about the condition of the human heart. And you can, you can see that this is what Jesus is doing when you look at the last verse, verse 45, Jesus says, so also it will be with this evil generation. And you may remember from last week, a few passage, few verses back, he says again, same audience, the Pharisees, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. So there's something about the Pharisees and, and the people associated with them in their generation that is so flawed that he calls them evil and adulterous. So what's going on when we're talking about evil, when we're talking about unfaithfulness, there's a heart problem. It's a heart issue. And so he's giving us a glimpse, uh, kind of a supernatural glimpse into the true condition of our hearts. Now, when I say hearts, I'm talking, I'm not just talking about the, the physical muscle that, that pumps uh, blood around your body. I'm talking about the seat of our emotions. That, that's how we use this word. The, the deepest longings that we have, the strongest affections, the allegiances that we make with things in this world and people in this world. And those kind of longings, they, they can't just be changed. You can't go and change what somebody loves most in their life. You know, modern science has done a lot of really incredible things. I mean, you can change and fix a lot of things. On the outside of us, I mean, you, you want a different nose, you know, smoother skin. If you want darker hair, more hair, whatever. Like, we, we can do that with, with modern science. You can, you can literally make the blind see with lasers. I mean, go back 50 years ago and tell somebody, lasers are going to make people see. My wife had her, la- her 40th birthday. Her parents gave her laser, you know, the, um, the word, uh, LASIK. Thank you, Ben. And, and she was like, they literally gave me the gift of sight. <laughs> Now we can do that with modern science. We can, we can fix things on the inside. You know, if you have a bad kidneys or high blood pressure or even brain problems, we can fix that. We can even fix emotional and psychological issues like anxiety and depression. But what we long for most, the things that we love the most, science can't change that. There's no, there's no pill that's going to make us wiser parents. There's no, uh, there's no surgery to make the kids listen to us more. There's no laser that's going to make us more responsible people. You know, there's not an outpatient procedure that, that can make us, stop us from making self-destructive decisions in life. Those, are, those deal with our deepest longings. That can't be fixed by science because the heart is, is complex. It's beautiful, but it's complex. And it's the reason in, in the re- recovery community, you, you hear this phrase, they haven't hit rock bottom yet. That's not necessarily a Christian, totally Christian phrase, but what they're acknowledging when they're around addictive people is that something has to happen for that to change. I can't enter in and control and change the things that they're running to and why they're doing it. So in this passage, Jesus is using the imagery of demons to tell us some some beautiful and some awful truths about our hearts and where our hearts can lead us. And specifically, we're going to walk through this passage, and I want us to see that our hearts were made to love God alone. Secondly, I want us to see that we cannot love God and this world. And thirdly, I want us to see that our hearts will only truly be satisfied when they are possessed by Jesus. So that, that's where we're going. First, the, Pharise- the, the heart was made to love God alone. The Pharisees here, they have committed the sin of all sins. They have been in the presence of Jesus Christ and they have chosen not to love him. There's no greater sin that that we can commit. Jesus has been with them. He has done all the miracles that anybody could have asked for. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. 
Uh, He's multiplying fish and bread to feed the crowds. And if you were here last week, you know the Pharisees, they, they weren't convinced. They said, we want another sign. And so what we have here are religious leaders who are fundamentally unbelievers. Just the, the ultimate oxymoron. You have religious leaders who are unbelievers. If you're old enough to remember the old school history channel, not the app, but like the channel that you would go to and watch history stuff. Every Christmas and Easter, they would have something like, they'd have these shows searching for the historic Jesus or finding the true Jesus. And I can remember as a new believer, it was Christmas time and they were advertising one of these shows and I thought, oh, this is great. I wanna learn more about Jesus. And then they brought the scholars on, the the Christian scholars that don't even believe the resurrection, don't believe the virgin birth. I'm just like, okay, I, I get their scholars, but Christian scholars, they can't be Christian scholars if they're not Christian. I mean, we're not, we're not debating predestination or baptism. This is the resurrection. This is the big one. They don't believe it. That's not a Christian leader. That's how I'm looking at the Pharisees in this passage. They do not believe. They are religious leaders who don't believe. It is the blind leading the blind. So when they couldn't deny the supernatural nature of Jesus' miracles, what did they do? They said, your powers are Satan. To which Jesus very famously responded, a kingdom divided will not will fall. No house divided can stand. So he's saying, if my powers were from Satan and I'm using it on demons, that doesn't make sense. Nobody shoots their own forces. And then he says, and another thing, I'm not the only one casting out demons here. You guys do it too. You're not as good as I am, but you do it. So where do your powers come from? And then Jesus tells them, kind of in my mind, that the crescendo of emotion, even the Ninevites, when they heard from Jonah, even they believed, yet there is a better, someone better than Jonah is in front of you, and you can't even see that. Even the queen of Sheba, when she heard the message of God through Solomon, she believed, and one greater than Solomon is standing in front of you, and you don't. The reason they are an evil and adulterous generation is because they have been in the presence of Jesus. They have seen his miracles and they have chosen not to love him, not to bow to him. And this is what makes them both evil and adulterous. Uh, Adultery, if you know your Old Testament, that's the main way that God describes the spiritual infidelity of his people. And when I was, I started in campus ministry, so I did a lot of weddings early on in my years in ministry. And uh, in the beginning, I was like, oh, what, a, what perfect language to communicate the gospel at a wedding. We've got marital language here, adultery. And I would start talking about adultery at a wedding. And I, after enough eyebrows went up, I thought, okay, maybe this isn't the best technique here. And it isn't the best time to be talking about spiritual adultery. But it is really important to understand why God uses that language, because it communicates something to us about our relationship with him. It communicates like who is the one that we should love. And you may have heard the term, the sanctity of marriage. There's something holy about marriage because it is is in the human marriage relationship that provides a model by through which God demands that we worship him and him alone, no one else, because he is the quintessential perfect spouse in every possible way. So to not be spiritually faithful to him is to commit spiritual adultery. He wants us to know we were made to love him. And the scary part about this passage is it's clearly saying the more access you have to Jesus, the more responsibility you have to love him. 
These Pharisees, this is the latter state was worse than the first. The author of Hebrews says something very similar. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So we're not talking about believers who have lost their salvation. You hear the language is tasted, shared, touched. They're not ingesting, they're not committing. These are people who have been around the church, been around Christians, and they decide they don't want to believe. I mean, think about these Pharisees. What greater access could you have standing in front of a prophet greater than Jonah, a king greater than Solomon, the ultimate perfect prophet, priest, and king, the God incarnate, Jesus Christ. They're standing in front of him and they're choosing not to love him, not to bow to him. Jesus is who should occupy this room. A demon leaves, nothing comes in, more demons come. They try to tidy up their house, make it cleaner. It only somehow makes it more susceptible to eight demons instead of one. And it's clear that to these Pharisees, it would have been better had they never even seen Jesus. It would have been just one demon, not eight. Those of us who have access to Jesus have a higher heightened responsibility to respond. Jesus doesn't want a shallow commitment. He doesn't want a give and take negotiation type of relationship. He wants all of us. He wants us to commit to him completely. He doesn't want us to just profess faith when it's easy, when it's socially acceptable, when it's cool. He wants all of us all the time. He wants us to vow to him, to love him for rich or for poor and in sickness and in health until death. That's the kind of relationship he demands of us And that's the kind of relationship we were made for. That's the first thing. The second thing is that our hearts cannot do this. They can't love God and love the world. It's impossible. So the sin of the Pharisees, it actually isn't just unbelief. Their their sin is not unbelief. Unbelief is not the main problem. The problem is they are choosing to love something other than Jesus. This is why the adultery language is so appropriate here. Believing and unbelieving isn't the issue. James says the demons believe and they shudder. Doesn't help them, they're not saved. When I lived in Pisa, Italy, it was, there was a weird triangle of satanic stuff. And this is one of the, one of the centers of, of satanic worship. And I was talking with one of these people and they said, we believe in the Bible. We believe Jesus is who he is, but we choose not to worship him. Our love is elsewhere. So you, you can believe, these people believe in God, they just don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They've chosen to love something else. And I think it's a good illustration. There's no middle ground. No heart operates in a vacuum. We're going to love something. And the question is, do we love God or are we gonna love something else that's not God? Jesus says, commit yourself to your heavenly spouse or commit spiritual adultery. Matthew chapter 12 Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then this is how James, the brother of Jesus, says a similar thing. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the Pharisees, they are, they are choosing not to love Jesus. And, and if we're going to listen to what James is saying, that means they are choosing to love the world. That's their decision. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, maybe it was last week, we talked about how the Pharisees functionally had one job. Their one job was to make sure Israel is not exiled again, to make sure maybe the Romans don't come in and destroy the temple and take over. What they're choosing to do is not to trust God in that endeavor. What they're choosing is to trust and love in their control and their power and ultimately in their self-righteousness. Because remember, what they're doing is they are adding all these little accomplishable laws to make them think they're actually following and adhering and accomplishing the laws that God has given them to do when they're really failing utterly. Maybe you've had a child, I sure certainly have never had this, but maybe you had a child who you, you told, you asked, have you, you told him to brush your teeth? Some time has passed, you haven't heard any water going. And you said, did you brush your teeth? Yes. Today? Well, not today. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be clear when you ask a question. Well, in that moment, what they're doing is they're creating this technicality so that they can justify doing what they want to do and not have to pay the penalty for their disobedience. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. They're creating these technicalities with all these little additions to the law so that they cannot have to technically feel like they're accomplishing it, not have to feel like they're going to face punishment for not, and the, this byproduct of it is they feel like God then owes them something. God owes them Israel. God owes them protection. God owes them the power and influence and control that they have in that society. That is what we call legalism. Legalism is saying, I don't like the law, so I'm going to add to the law. I'm going to change it by adding it, adding to it. And this is why these hearts, this, this, this room, it can't remain empty. Something has to happen because our hearts are not vacuums. They will love something. And if it's not God, it's going to be something of the world. In the, in the Pharisees' case, I, I think you can make a strong case. They're, what they're loving is their own control, their own power, and their own self-righteousness. Uh, if you get the E! News, well, if a lot of you get it. If you actually open it, you, uh, you read that in the resources this week, every, every week I try to give you two articles and maybe a podcast or something that I've found personally helpful. And I commended to you this week, Julie Slattery. She is a Christian, a Christian clinical psychologist who has given uh, most of her professional work to talking about sex. And it was we Angela and I got the chance to listen to her last weekend at a family life thing, and and it's funny how it overlaps with what we're looking at here because one of the ways that we have, as a church in our lifetime, committed the same kind of legalistic sin that the Pharisees are doing is through what we now call the purity culture. Now, before I say, I want to provide some caveats. Some people have gotten through what we now call the purity culture, and it's gone well for them, and praise God. But it's had a lot of problems. And when I say purity culture, I mean a generation of people who have committed themselves to purity, sexual purity until marriage. Now, I, I don't want anybody to freak out. I do believe that God wants sex only and beautifully to be experienced in the context of marriage. I can see some of your eyebrows, like where's Jim going with this? But in the worst parts of it, think about it. When you use this word purity, what happens is that people begin to get very creative about what actually constitutes purity. 
they developed new laws, new rules. And then you begin to see, and I got to see a lot of this in college ministry, what happens when somebody had done it. We remain pure and the person they're marrying hasn't. I've seen deep grief, like, God, I earned this. Why are you not giving me, why aren't you giving me somebody who's done the same thing, who's accomplished the same goal? Feeling like God has let them down in some way. Or what happens when marriage doesn't happen? God, I've stayed pure. Why are you not giving me this thing that I'm working towards? And then what happens when people aren't able to remain pure? Well, that purity ring becomes this massive vehicle of either pride or shame. Because when you use the word pure, you, you can't, once you lose it, you can't get it back. You can't, you can't go back to purity. So what happens in the, in the worst parts of this culture is that legalism began to win the day when it came to the sexual ethic. Not to mention that this whole sexual ethic is one that ends on the wedding day. I mean, there's, there's a lot more that we need to understand about sexual ethic long after you're married. But we can fall off the horse on the other side as well because there's two ditches, you know, to every, to every road, on the side of every road. So if that's legalism, there's also antinomianism. Antinomianism says the same thing in the, other, in, a, in the exact opposite kind of way. Antinomianism says, I don't like the law, so I'm gonna change it, not by adding to it, but by taking away from it. So if we're gonna continue the idea of a sexual ethic, I am going to create a God in my mind who is for whatever my sexual desires lead me to want to do. It's the same thing. It's loving something other than God. Whether we add to his law, whether we subtract from his law, it's ultimately loving ourselves and loving the world. And then we have this, again, this warning. I think not, not just to the Pharisees, but to us. Those who have a heightened access to Jesus have a higher responsibility to respond. And the price of not is higher than if we had never had any of this access to Jesus. I mean, and if you're here today, you're, unless this is the first time you've stumbled in on a church, which probably, maybe, I can't imagine for most people that's the case, you've been around the body of Christ. Believers are the body of Christ. We are in a way the real extension of the body of Christ. So what's true of the Pharisees is also true of all of us. We have this gift of access. And the question is, are we going to choose to love Jesus or are we just gonna work to love other things and just to tidy our room up, tidy our heart up through other methods? Because if that's what we do, we can only do that for so long before not just one demon comes back, but he and seven of his friends who are more evil than him. It is a serious thing to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and choose not to love him. In the words of the apostle John, do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. These loves, they're mutually exclusive. Again, in the recovery community, I just learned this recently, but a relapse is much considered much more dangerous than the initial addiction. Because the initial addiction, it, you know, it can kind of creep up on you. But when you relapse, you know what you're choosing. You know what you're getting into. Often, without the tolerance that we're, you were used to having before. So often, let's say if someone's an alcoholic, they tend to, if they're going to have a relapse, they tend to not just slowly sip on, sip on a beer. They tend to chug vodka. They're more fully giving themselves to that substance. And the latter 
case is worse than the first. And it's the same thing spiritually. A lethal relapse spiritually is what happens when we succumb to the crushing weight of this building of desire for sin in our lives because we've just been white knuckling it, trying to stay away and abstinent from whatever it is we're not supposed to do rather than killing that bad desire and that bad gesture through a greater satisfaction and joy in the one who we were made to love, Jesus Christ. We don't white knuckle it, we love and we grow in that relationship. We love God or we love the world. There is not anything in between. So what do we do? How do we, how do we love God? This is the third part. Our hearts must be possessed by Jesus. The only way that our hearts are ever going to be truly satisfied is if they're possessed by Jesus. I'm obviously continuing this possession imagery. But instead of loving the world and being possessed by demons, we love Jesus and we're possessed by him. Because all of us are, are looking for love. We're going to search for love. No, nobody doesn't. And, and we're gonna look to things like money and influence and power and even obedient children to feel that love. But all of these things are going to fail us because none of those things loves us back. Nothing in this world that we look to for love is gonna love us back. In fact, not only is it gonna fail us, it will abuse us and it will leave us longing for the love that we can't find. And the Apostle John says that this world will not satisfy us because it is passing away. So the world is passing away. And then he says the desires of this world are passing away too. All this is going away. That's why it doesn't, doesn't satisfy you. It can't love you and it's going away. John Piper, speaking about this text, he says, nobody buys stock in a company that is sure to go bankrupt. Nobody sets up house in a sinking ship. No reasonable person would lay up treasure where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. The world is passing away. To set your heart on it is only asking for heartache and misery in the end. I had the great sweet privilege of officiating a wedding this week, a simple sweet wedding. And one of the things I love most about officiating a wedding is getting to tell people that God's purpose in this world is to bring his people to a wedding one day that is so rich and beautiful and intimate that the only way we can even describe it here on earth is to look at the love of a bride and a groom on their wedding day and say, there, something like that is the way that Jesus loves his treasured possession, his bride his true love the church. That's what we have waiting for us when Jesus possesses us. We are all impure, spiritual idolaters. And Jesus comes and through the sacrifice of his life on the cross makes us pure. This is not a purity we can lose. This is a purity we'll always have. This is, this is why historically a bride wears a white dress on her wedding day. It has nothing to do with her sexual purity. It has to do everything with the righteousness that will clothe us at the end of time at the wedding between the church and Jesus. That purity you can't lose. And so people like Julie Slattery saying, let's get rid of the purity language because of the legalism that it creates. Let's just talk about integrity giving our lives to the authority of the one who loves us, Jesus Christ, in every way, whatever that means, money, power, influence, family, sex, all of it, honor him in integrity. Let his love change the way that we interact with everything in this world. This is why Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not saying keep my commandments and I'll love you. 
He's saying, love me and let me change the way that you look at everything. Let me change the ways that you desire. Science can't change your desire. Friends can't change your desire. Even circumstances will not ultimately change what we love, but Jesus is saying that he can. He can change our desires, conform our desires. But the Pharisees don't see that. They chose not to love Jesus. And the latter state was worse than the first. But when we turn to Jesus and we love Jesus and we confess him as Lord, if we're gonna continue in John 14, the next verse says, and Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is being possessed by Jesus. He sends his spirit inside of us to captivate our hearts, conform us in, in his image, to never let us go and to bring us home. Ultimately, to that Revelation 19 wedding at the end of time. You know, the Bible starts with a wedding and ends with a wedding. That's a wedding that we're called to be at. And the way that we are there as the bride is to love Jesus. Some of us need to hit gospel rock bottom. And it's, it's not the same as recovery rock bottom. Recovery rock bottom, things get hard enough and you'll see it and you'll wise up and you'll choose to live your life differently. Gospel rock bottom is getting to the point where you hate your sin and your idolatry so much. You have tried to love this world and you have seen that it does not love you back and you truly want Jesus because he is the only hope in any of those things. That's gospel rock bottom. And it's a beautiful place to be because that's what opens this door to this relationship, to be possessed by Jesus, taken by him, carried along, and secured for eternity with him. Let us all commit our lives to the only person who will ever truly, fully, and eternally satisfy us. Let's pray. God, we, we come to you so grateful that it is through love that you call us. And we pray that our hearts would be drawn and conformed by this love and that any of us who are just trying to white knuckle resist sin, would you help us to see the beauty of just receiving the love, having a greater joy and a greater satisfaction that just makes the desire for those other things less or even go away. God, we pray that we would be a church that would, you would grow us inside, change our hearts because nothing else will. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.